This is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for April 22nd. As I record this at 1.04 p.m. Pacific time, there have been 837,719 confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States with 46,771 deaths. The hotspot remains the New York City tri-state area with Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York State comprising over 55% of the total deaths. The USNS Comfort will leave New York City at the request of Governor Andrew Cuomo. It will head back to Virginia after being stationed in New York City for three weeks. Cuomo told President Trump at a meeting in the White House yesterday that the capacity was no longer needed. Governor Newsom of California said today at his daily press briefing that surgeries, including tumor removals and heart surgeries, would be permitted to be scheduled immediately. That is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update. Hello and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. We have a big full plate for you today. Number one, we are going to have a great interview about the history of the politics of oil. Obviously, oil very much in the news as this week it slipped to negative prices per barrel. I swear to God, if I didn't live in an apartment that was already 25% taken up by bird cages, I'd throw a couple barrels in there, fill them up, and just sit on them for a rainy day. We're also going to talk about the protests to reopen the economy, and specifically how a pack of grifters might be running this entire thing and whether or not it matters to the sentiment of the rage. But first, we talk about the only story that really matters. And that, of course, is coronavirus. The IHME model, otherwise referred to as the Chris Murray model, this has uh, been watched quite a bit. It's funded by Bill Gates. It's run out of the University of Washington. And it's done a fairly admirable job of showing a projection of uh, capacity, infections, uh, intensive care units, ventilators, blah, blah, blah. But most impressively, it seems to have tracked United States deaths very effectively, meaning that its projections of getting up to the high 2000s and then slowly kind of sloping down has indeed tracked. We've been a little higher, a little lower, but again, this no one's going to send them a Sizzler gift certificate for nailing things right on the head. The idea is just that we get a vague projection at how many lives will be lost in the first wave of this virus. But something happened yesterday. As they updated this model, 
one number went in a direction it has never moved before. See, since the very beginning, the Murray model has projected what the total deaths were going to be in the United States. And at times, this number was terrifying. Six digits plus. More recently, it went to 80, and then it fell to 60. 60,000 people. For sure, something that is horrifying and, and, and certainly worth trying to uh, uh, mitigate on any level possible. But today, when I checked this IHME model, I saw that the death toll had gone from 60 to 65,000 deaths. A little more, to be precise. In fact, it's damn near 66,000. What are we to make of that? Well, number one, it means that we're actually getting close to 60,000 deaths. As I mentioned at the top of the program during the hyperbole-free update, we're already in the mid-40s. So, because I am not a virologist, I'm not going to comment on whether or not I think this is accurate or not. But I can speak to what this means politically. Because I still think we are in a time warp right now. Nothing really matters and nobody knows what the hell's going on because by the time that we get out of this time warp where we are all looking at our political compasses and they are swinging wildly, sure, we can speculate on whether or not it is hanging in one direction for one second or two and maybe that will be the gravity when we get to the other end, but we don't know for sure. However... If we blow past that 65,000 figure, if we blow past the 60,000 figure, and I mean in a way that doesn't look like it's stopping anytime soon, and we start climbing to 100,000, this is going to be danger Will Robinson territory for not only Donald Trump, but also the Republican Party. Now, I know I said a few weeks ago that 100,000 was now the betting line, right? If we are under 100,000, Donald Trump will claim victory. If we're over 100,000, it's going to be dicey. If we are well over 100,000, he's cooked. And maybe this is Donald Trump being the victim of the fact that we've recalibrated our expectations with this. But this IHME model is something that a lot of people watch. The fact that it was revised up is something that if it keeps happening will become a talking point. That 60,000 number is something that Donald Trump has said during a press conference. And this is different than the stuff he said back in February, in my opinion. You know, he can say, ah, there's going to be five or ten people. We got it under control. I think that is my guess, right? I don't know for sure. I don't know what's going to stick in the political world. Again, going through a time warp. But I'm, if I were a betting man, I would bet on the fact that we're, the average American is going to look out 
onto the world stage and see the death and destruction that this virus has wrought, we're going to have a gaudy, insane number of worldwide dead if we have a benefit concert for the world uh, that has suffered from this, that we're going to look less at everybody's moves right before. This will be looked at as a worldwide scourge. Sure, we'll marvel at the people that handled it exceptionally well. South Korea, Taiwan, Germany. But by and large, we are going to look at this as something that was insanely destructive. However, even if the Trump administration gets a mulligan for this thing having just affected everyone, he's not going to get a mulligan if this is not contained while he was taking precautions. Because now it's a different thing. I think it will always be a partisan, a partisan fight uh, to say that he was asleep at the wheel. It will not be a partisan fight to say that while he was doing what he says was the government's best effort, that that number continued to rise. And so, I bring you to this, quite possibly, the most important seven days in Donald Trump's presidency. And more specifically, to his chances of extending that presidency in November. Deaths are a lagging indicator. Meaning that the people that are dying today got sick and didn't get the treatment that they needed a couple weeks ago. While we are seeing that the New York tri-state area is calming down, that should lead to a decrease in deaths. But if it doesn't, if by the next time that I speak to you on a Wednesday, we, are, we would now be in to May. If we are still losing 2,000 people a day, then the conversation stops becoming what did you do, what could you do, and now refocuses on what are you doing. In that level of crisis... That is going to be a major problem. And on top of that, you've got Republican governors, by and large, who are thinking about the economy. And I don't blame them for thinking about the economy. I think that they need to think about the economy. But politically, this is going to be an ugly scene if they are opening things up and they see spikes in their areas. Compound that more if the media starts to focus on a national death toll. The Biden campaign, by and large, up until now, has bet their entire strategy on Donald Trump screwing up. They've really not done a lot themselves. I mean, (laughs) Biden's first ad was about kindness, compassion, and empathy. 
cool. <laughs> I mean, you might as well say, I'm not the other guy. These are the kind of things that Biden is hoping for. I don't mean he's hoping for death, right? I mean, he's hoping for the concept of Trump mismanagement cementing itself. And nothing will bind that to the consciousness more than what is viewed as an out-of-control death toll. Longtime listeners to this show know that I have one rule when it comes to politics. That you can clarify all of the messaging, all of the spin, all of the theatrics if you just focus on one North Star. Politics is about getting more people on a predetermined date to go into a booth and press your button instead of your opponent's. That's it. Everything that feeds into that is positive. Anything that doesn't feed into that is neutral. Anything that erodes from that is negative. And so it is with that that I tell you I can explain this. I would rather die free than to live a slave to the man in the mansion. Governor Walls, I would ask you to reopen all business right now. Use the CDC guidelines for spacing, for hand washing, for masks, but let people make those decisions on their own. That is sound from in front of Minnesota Governor Tim Wall's mansion last Friday. It is a protest, obviously, to reopen the state to businesses both essential and non-essential. You might have heard about some of the investigation into how these protests got off the ground. Started with a Reddit thread, as most internet sleuthing tends to do, but then went into the hands of Krebs on Security. This is an online uh, security firm. They did some pretty interesting sleuthing and found two things specifically. Number one, a ton of of the reopen domain, so reopen Connecticut, C-O-N-N, reopen ARC, reopen Dell for Delaware. They were all registered to the same dude, nefarious, huh? Well, it was until they found out that uh, after an interview with Mother Jones, it was a liberal dude who just didn't want these domains to fall into the hands of nefarious people. (laughs) So he registered them all himself. And started a lot of this astroturfing conversation. If you're not familiar with the term astroturfing, basically it's a pejorative when it's not a grassroots movement. It is funded by some nefarious purpose. It is now astroturfed instead of grassroots, right? I don't know exactly how much I love that phrase. We'll get into that in a second. But the one thing that they did find that is indeed for sure are that there were some domains that were pointing back to very popular Facebook groups that were all run by the Door Brothers. Who, pray tell, are the Door Brothers? Well, 
They are well known in conservative circles, specifically the Second Amendment circles and the anti-abortion crowd, but not necessarily in the way that you might think. The Door Brothers are accused by many people who are staples in those causes as scam artists. Well, how do they scam people by running Facebook groups? Are they just there to stir the pot and make a bunch of people run out of their houses? No. They're there to incite crowds into action. And whether or not they leave their house, well, that's up to them. What the Door Brothers really want are for you to get so cheesed off, you sign a petition. Wait, what? Why? Why Why a petition? What does a petition matter? Petitions are useless. Sure. For everybody that signed one of their petitions, uh, pledging to back some state law or send a message to the governor, yeah, probably is useless. What isn't useless, in fact, is very, very, very valuable, is your email. Let's go back to how we started this segment. The name of the game politically is to get more people into a booth to press your button instead of your opponent's. Step one to doing that is identifying the people that you need to talk to. What the Door Brothers do are build email lists and sell them to whomever would like to buy them. So let's say you're in Minnesota or you're in Virginia or you're in Florida and you want to run as a Republican, as a conservative. If you've got the cash, you can now know know the most passionate people on the Second Amendment or abortion rights. In fact, they are so good at carving out this niche that they have founded their own organization to the right of the NRA. In fact, it's the NRA that has gone out of their way to label the doors as a scam syndicate. So, the doors want to gin up controversy because they want your email, because they want to later sell it. But what about everybody out there? Does that mean that they're paid? Does that mean that they're stupid? No. It's the reason I don't like the astroturfing term. In fact, it's the same reason why I don't like the paid protester term that the conservatives tend to slander the liberals about. If you leave your house because you're passionate, then your passion should be registered. It doesn't matter if George Soros paid for the permits for the park or printing the flyers. Doesn't matter if the Door Brothers are the ones who are starting these Facebook groups just so they can grift email addresses. The reason why these things are happening are not because somebody off in the distance is putting their fingers together evilly and deciding to activate a populace. It's because they are taking advantage 
of a rich vein of passion. I believe that everybody who was out there screaming and yelling about how they needed to reopen the economy believes in what they said, even more so now. Half the people that I saw in those clips when I was pulling that sound had masks on. They understand that there is an inherent risk of leaving their house. They just feel more passionately about what they're saying. Whether or not you agree with their cause, understanding their passion is key. It's key to either creating arguments for which they will listen or hopefully creating a situation where all voices can at the very least be felt to be heard. If we can focus on this specific issue for a second, I will only offer this parting thought. Obviously, this is a chaotic situation that has overturned all of our lives. I was supposed to be at a Rage Against the Machine concert last night. Boo-hoo to me. But at the same time, the chaos in this moment in history will only be made worse, if not permanent, if we dig our heels in the sand and start fighting about the fact that we're fighting. Yes, some people want to reopen the economy. The United States is very big. And while we do need to take precautions, we do need to be realistic about what it means to totally shut off the means of income for millions of Americans. Yes, we need to be concerned about reinfection. Not only are we not through the first wave of this, but we are also setting precedent for the next wave that is likely to hit sometime in the fall. It is up to us to manage these turbulent waters, understanding that we're going to hit rocks along the way. The bare minimum of what we can do is listen to each other and understand each other's pain. Not only is that good hygiene, it also lessens the ability for pain grifters like the Door Brothers to make a cheap buck off our honest emotions. I would like to thank everybody who listens to this show. I know that podcast listening in general is down across the board because nobody's got commutes anymore. I mean, the essential folks do. And God bless each and every one of you. If on your way to your essential job or during it, you're listening to my dulcet tones. But we have not seen our numbers fall off. In fact, we've seen them tick up just a little bit. But if we've been able to maintain our growth, then I know you guys are listening and you're probably enjoying the show lately, and I'm very happy for that. So I got a very modest goal. I want to see if we can hit it. I'd love to get 10 reviews on Apple. I know a lot of people use Apple. A lot of people don't. Maybe we'll do another platform next week. But I'd love to see if we can get 10 new reviews on Apple, meaning that the vast majority of you are going to think somebody else will do it. But one person's going to do it. And if there's 10 of those one people, then we've totally nailed it. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for this here podcast. It's a great way to help for free. If you do have money, you can go over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. 
You guys have been the lifeblood of this. You're the reason why I was out on the road before this horrid virus took away my precious election. But I also just want to get a little sappy again. I've been trying to to keep the waterworks back uh, uh, for the last few weeks. I, I know times are tough. I know everybody's looking at their budget. I know that there's a lot of uncertainty out there. But I just want to say this. Thank you. Thank you for carving this out of your budget. Thank you for supporting independent media. Thank you, thank you, thank you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 gets you two bonus episodes, one on Monday and one on Thursday. One more piece of business. Indeed, we were giving away Tulsi Gabbard swag, and we have a winner. Sam, Sam, go ahead and check your uh, uh, Patreon notifications and send me a good address so I can mail you your Tulsi Gabbard swag. Which means we've come to quite possibly the biggest, most consequential campaign undertaker giveaway of all time. Oh, yeah. Bernie Sanders, we've got signs, press pass. Uh, we got a bumper sticker. We're going to do two winners for the next two weeks because I suspect there's a lot of people that are going to want campaign-use stuff from the 2020 Bernie Sanders campaign. You can get in line to win it for free over the next two weeks. All you have to do is head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com on the post for uh, this episode that comes out April 22nd. Write gong, G-O-N-G. You do not have to be a patron to, to be entered into this. I legally have to tell you that. Do not have to be a patron. You literally just have to go on over there, write gong, that's it. Two winners for the next two weeks for Bernie 2020. Our returning guest to the show today is Osama Khalil. He is an associate professor of history at Syracuse University's Maxwell School and the editor of United States Relations with China and Iran Toward the Asian Century. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. One quick note on this interview. This was recorded in late March, so there is no mention of the current issues with our oil production, but because we are all about context here, I just wanted to give you all a little primer on this subject as we now all become petroleum experts on Twitter. And with that, welcome to the show, Osama. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, we talked uh, uh, previously about uh, kind of the, the history of Iran 
uh, uh, we we did not uh, talk about or I, I I earmarked that I would love to just kind of get a broader, more pulled back view of the politics of oil uh, and 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 how sure. much that has shaped foreign relations and just even the the internal politics of the Middle East and other oil rich regions. So if we're going to find a starting point of our modern politics of oil, where do we start? Well, that's a great question. So I think one of the one of the things I think people often don't realize is that the United States is and was an oil power for the late 19th century into the 20th century, right? For most of the 20th century. And in fact, as we get into the 21st, it's trying to come back um, as an oil power. And so I, I think one, one of the ways I describe it to um, my students is, I think you can think about this in three phases, and we may be moving into a fourth phase now, right? Which is, so that first phase kind of pre-World War II, where the United States is this dominant oil power. And there's a global competition for, for oil resources, right? In the sense that you have standard oil in the United States, John D. Rockefeller, um, is the 800-pound is the gorilla in the global oil market, right? And they have a couple of competitors, some British, Royal Dutch, as well as some Russian uh, competitors. But standard oil, and then after it's broken up into the baby standards, is really the major player. And they will be, especially with the, the baby standards, into the interwar period. And then we have our second phase, which kicks in after the Second, the second World War, what becomes known as the, the post-war petroleum order. And that's where you see the United States and its kind of its junior partner of Great Britain anointing themselves the, the global guarantor of oil, of oil supplies. And here, what they're focused on is really the Persian Gulf, right? So um, if during the pre-World War II period, uh, much of the oil was in the Western Hemisphere, so the United States, Mexico, Venezuela, and then Canada, after World War II, there's a, a definite shift towards the Persian Gulf where the major oil reserves are now are being found and have been found in the interwar period. Now, what's interesting is, is they're found in a number of countries like Iran, like we talked about uh, before, where these are you know, newly independent or newly formed countries. Many of them are still under British, uh, kind of a, a British uh, protectorate. Status, so a place like Kuwait, what we now think of as the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, um, Iraq was a newly created country at the end of, of the League of Nations, and its boundaries are essentially formed due to oil, oil in the north, oil in the south, right? Uh, Saudi Arabia, a country that had uh, never been colonized or recently independent, um, and itself, uh, when oil is found in Saudi Arabia, that's not exactly what they're hoping to find. What they're hoping to find is water, right? So it's this kind of amazing kind of the irony of finding oil in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but that shift towards the Persian Gulf will, and, and the Persian Gulf as the main center of post-war oil production is going to you know, be really important in kind of driving this narrative. And I think, as we talked about last time, what's, what most people don't realize is that oil is not meant for U.S. markets, right? Yeah. The U.S., well until the 1960s, 1970s, is a net oil exporter, still this big oil power. That oil from the Persian Gulf is going to rebuild Western Europe. It's cheap, it's nearby, and that's where it's going. So Western Europe and Japan, and it will stay that way 
until the late 1960s, 1970s. We'll talk about that in a second, the third phase. So when we think about the U.S. and the U.K. as these the global guarantors of, of oil supplies or the guarantors of global oil supplies, what's also part of this are what's known as the seven sisters, right? So these are the baby, the baby standards, Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, Texaco, and then Gulf, as well as British Petroleum and World Dutch Shell. Those are what are known as kind of the major seven sister oil companies. The third phase is probably the one that I think your reader. Well, here, hold on, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before, 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 before we get to the third phase, let me, um, let yeah. me, let me circle back real quick because I'm fascinated with Saudi Arabia. Uh, I, yeah. I, they are, they are just this, uh, a very, very interesting to me kind of uh, anomaly, and they microwave up so fast. They are so powerful, right. and and probably, uh, unless uh, I'm, I'm incorrect, they seem to be kind of the 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 biggest uh, a benefiter of the kind of politics that we are talking about now by way of their discovery. But what is Saudi Arabia before that? Like like what is going on there? Is it a farming community? Is it barren? Like what is happening in Saudi Arabia? So one of the things you want to separate is kind of what we think of as Saudi Arabia today from Saudi Arabia in the late 19th early 20th century because at the the inner the inner area right, the inner area of Saudi Arabia. If you think about the coasts, right, the coastal area where the, the, the holy cities of Mecca and Medina are, as well as uh, some of the other major towns, are nominally, in, are nominally parts of the Ottoman Empire, right? So they're nominally independent parts of the Ottoman Empire. They, play, they pay a tribute. They manage the, the hedge pilgrimage for, for Muslims around the world. There's not a ton of trade. And there's not a lot going on in, inside Saudi Arabia, within the, the internal uh, uh, provinces of Saudi Arabia, to have some tribes. And it's out of those tribes that you're going to see the Saud family, right, uh, which becomes the kingdom. They, they're going to cut an alliance with some religious leaders, what become known as the, the Wahhabi sect of Islam, this very Puritan form of Islam. Um, and they're going to unite against the local uh the local leader who has who's at that point nominally part of the ottoman empire but then cuts his own independent deal with the british this is, takes us all back to if your listeners have ever watched lawrence of arabia or are familiar with lawrence of arabia's uh exploits during world war one so part of that story is the following right that the british in their hopes of knocking the ottoman empire out of world war one and, and using that to kind of help lead to victory, are going to cut a side deal with a man known as the Sharif Hussein of Mecca, right? So this is, he is the, the, the local leader who claims to be a descendant of the, the prophet of Islam, the prophet Muhammad. And the deal is this, if you launch a revolt, okay, against the Ottomans, an Arab revolt against the Ottomans, we will recognize an independent Arab kingdom with you as its head. Um, and so these negotiations are going to go back and forth as to how big is this kingdom, what does it entail, and what would this revolt entail. And so they believe, the Sharif Hussein of Mecca believes he has a deal with the British uh, during World War One. They will launch an Arab revolt. That's where T. Lawrence, otherwise known as Lawrence Arabia, comes in, works with his sons, uh, Sharif Hussein of Mecca's sons. And they launch this Arab revolt, also drawing on a number of Arab intellectuals from, you know, present-day Syria, Lebanon, uh, Palestine. The revolt is successful in that the Ottoman Empire 
you know, the Arab revolt is successful with the British forces. They are able to push the Ottoman, Ottoman forces back all the way to the Anatolian Peninsula. Places like Damascus and Jerusalem, etc., are liberated from Ottoman rule. But that independent Arab kingdom never comes about, right? And so after World War One, what we're going to see is Abdulaziz ibn Saud, the, the founder of the Saud dynasty, is going to cut this, this deal with the Wahhabi religious leaders. They will launch a revolt. They will take over what we now think of as the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and that kingdom will be established in 32. But oil is not going to be found there for a few more years. So as I mentioned, when they when uh, Ibn Saud cuts this, uh, cuts this concession deal, what he's hoping for is that they're going to find water because yeah. they have very little there. What their main, just, just so your listeners realize how little is there, their main sources of revenue are the hedge pilgrimage. So one, you know, once a year uh, for listeners, if they don't know, um, Muslims, uh, devout Muslims are supposed to make this pilgrimage from Mecca and Medina to Mecca and Medina in the footsteps of the prophet, right? Uh, the other main source are dates. That's it, right? They, Wow. There's, there's, yeah, that's it. That's all. That, we're not talking about a rich country, right? And so one of the things he's looking for uh, is how can I help? I have to somehow consolidate this broad kingdom. Most of it internally is desert, right? How do I consolidate this? He's worried also about, you know, kind of British intrigues on his boundaries because the British still have these principalities on his, on his uh, eastern and southern boundaries. And Meanwhile, oil has been found in neighboring territories, right? So it's been found in Iraq. Of course, Iran has oil at this point. It has a very vibrant oil industry by the 30s. Uh, Bahrain, they found oil in 32 in Bahrain. In Kuwait, next door, they will find oil. Uh, and then here comes this, this deal to uh, see what you can find, right? Hopefully, it'll be water. And then instead, they find the largest uh, oil reserves in the world. And in fact, you know, there's a great quote from the Secretary of State at the time, the American Secretary of State at the time, Porter Hall, that this is one of the world's great prizes, and it belongs to uh, Standard Oil of California. And so what we're going to get is a, a combined company, what becomes known as originally as California Arabian Standard Oil, and then eventually the, Arab, um, the American Arab Oil Company, Aramco. Um, and so Aramco is going to become this major pet player, right? Of course, in the world, world oil industries. Uh, and that's where, you know, when I think when Americans think of Saudi Arabian oil, it really doesn't kick in until 1944, 1945. Right? Okay. But, but that's, but that's where our partnership is forged. That, that, we, that it is an American company that is helping them get this out of the ground. And that is the company that is formed, uh, uh, you know, to to do it, and that will benefit obviously the the kingdom, but also that this is the the now uh, inextricable bond between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean that's the argument, right? So that here here, um, you know, what we have is, and it's it's a it's about a, over the course of a decade, right? I mean, so you know, Aramco will actually be, be renamed in '44 as Aramco. About a year later, we're going to have this very famous meeting between Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, just a few years, a few months before he dies, and Ibn Saud. So that's going to occur in Egypt. Roosevelt's on his way back from Yalta, uh, you know, negotiating with, with Stalin and with Churchill about the, what does the post-war look like. He's going to stop in uh, 
the Suez Canal, he will meet with Ibn Saud, and it seems to be this sign of kind of here is this other aspect. If if the Yalta meeting was one aspect of America's, you know, shaping the post-war, oil is going to be this other aspect of post-war power, and Saudi Arabia being an important player in it. And again, I mean, that that there is that interest, that that aspect of that story. And I think um, one of the things that we, we should probably touch on is there are kind of two narratives that, that historians have, you know, that are often competing when historians tell the story about oil. Uh, the one narrative is, you know, it's these spunky men who go out and these oil, and these companies because oil is scarce and they have to go find it in these harsh areas of the world and they cut these deals, um, and it's helped, you know, oil oil keeps the global economy going, right? Yes. Yeah. And that that idea of oil scarcity, right? That there's just not enough and has to be protected at all costs, right? These daring men and daring oil companies, and it's often what ends up happening is that's that explanation is often used to justify all kinds of actions by the United States, by its allies, whether it's the Saudis or anybody else. And of course, as we talked about with Iran, the backing of coups, the supporting of authoritarian governments, favorable taxation policies for American oil companies, military interventions, you know, on down the story through the 20th century into the 21st. There's a whole other story, right? This whole other narrative that some historians have come back to start challenging, which, which is that this isn't a case of too much oil, uh, of not enough oil. It's a case of too much oil, right? That these are oil-rich countries, especially when you look at the Persian Gulf. And as we just talked about with Saudi Arabia, they don't have any other major exports. You know, they don't have domestic industries. And they can't drink the oil. Uh, they have to sell it, right? So yeah. this is really a story about how do we maintain a global oil order, right? And one in which we find this balance in price, maintaining that price to the benefit of the major producers, the Saudis and the others. Um, as well as the consuming countries, right? So just enough and finding that right balance between enough money that the oil producers can build up their societies, can maintain these wealthy support, uh, wealthy you know, social welfare states, and the global economy booms, right? And at the same time, everyone in the supply chain makes enormous profits. Um, and so, so that's one of the, uh, you know, these kind of these two competing narratives. And I think Saudi Arabia, place of interest is obviously because it is, you know, the site of the world's, you know, largest oil reserves it is this interesting story and this interesting player in either, in either narrative, right? One, the oil scarcity narrative is we have to protect Saudi Arabia, right? And, and Roosevelt's meeting with Ibn Saud shows that it shows how important Saudi Arabia and Ibn Saud is to, to the story of, of oil and power in the 20th century, especially in the post-war. And then the other story is, oh, okay. If we think about this, that these guys have to sell their oil, right? They don't have anything else. It also helps us understand a lot more about some of the policies which will kick in, especially in you know in the in the mid nineteen seventies to today. And so, all right, so so let's let, let's go ahead and get into that phase three that you had started. Oh, sure, okay. So, so phase three, as we think about it, is this really kicks in after nineteen seventy three. In the midst of this nationalization trend among the major oil producers, and then of course the Arab oil embargo after the 1973 October Arab-Israeli October War, um, and so this oil embargo that, that that is imposed, and of course a number of your listeners, either they will remember or their parents definitely will this the you know the long gas lines etc. And what we now think of as one way to think about that post 73 
era is the era of the petrodollar. Right? And petrodollars work in a couple of different ways. So one of the ways you know we can think about it from a, a general popular culture one is the, the idea of the wealthy oil Arab sheikh, right? You know, kind of he's a standard character in almost every single mid seventies <laughs> on uh, uh, you know bad guy, right? In yeah. Every single film, TV show, always in the background of some kind of party somewhere, right? Um, but the reality with petrodollars is, is a little more complicated than that, and it's actually really links into, as you think about this transforming American economy in the 70s to today. So what I think your listeners, it's important for them to think about, and this connects both the second phase and the third phase, is that oil on international markets is priced in dollars, right? So this is an immediate boon to the U.S. economy, the fact that oil, in order for it to be bought and or traded, that you have to have currency, American currency, right? So that's one way. But what there's also going to be this deliberate attempt in the 70s uh, after the oil embargo by the Nixon and Ford administrations, and this will continue through, which is these these now wealthy oil countries. They're not all Arabs. For example, Iran will benefit dramatically from the oil embargo. It's not going to participate in the oil embargo, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's going to absolutely get a windfall because oil prices are going to spike, and they yeah. have been rising already, and I can talk a little more about that. So they've been rising already due to a series of nationalizations that begin really with Libya, Iraq, and then several other countries. Um, and so oil prices are going up. The major oil producers are just passing those costs on to the consumer. Um, at the same time, what's going to happen is what do you do with all this cash you now have? So one of the things that the, the Nixon and Ford administration are going to focus on is we want to get these major countries reinvesting in the U.S. So they're going to buy U.S. debt. They're going to buy treasury bonds. They're going to start – this is another place where Saudi Arabia is going to play a big role. But Shavi Iran was doing it before he was overthrown as well, making long-term investments in the U.S. So real estate, investing in U.S. companies. And, of course, the third aspect of petrodollars is the purchasing of large, massive amounts of U.S. military equipment. And this is going to be one of the things that the Shah of Iran does. Really, uh, and we talked about this the last time I was on, where we're talking about over a four- or five-year period in the mid-'70s, the Shah of Iran's defense budget is going to increase something like 800%. And he's buying everything the U.S. is willing to sell. Him. He's buying advanced weaponry and you know, as historians have gone back and looked at it, one of the things that's interesting is he wants to buy everything, top-of-the-line fighter jets. He's looking at buying nuclear reactors. Uh, and we have Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who is going in and is willing to sell him whatever he wants uh, over the objections of the Pentagon, over the objections of others within the State Department, that this is, you know, what the checkbook is open. Gotcha. So, so, other, that, so, that, yeah, so that, is, that is a big conflict internally, is that – the State Department has a a big stake in the Iranian leadership staying the same Iranian leadership and then and propping them up as a competitor to these other nationalized oil interests. But the Pentagon is like, well, I don't know about all these weapons going out like that. That seems yeah, like well, a, a pretty big, uh, you know, if that goes wrong, that's going to be very bad for us. Well, here's what's interesting, right? So, so when we think about the State Department, and this is, you know, Henry Kissinger uh, is is this fascinating figure, right? So, um. And for all kinds of reasons, positive and negative. But what's interesting is, you know, and we talked a little bit about this the last time I was on, is that from the, from the 60s into the, up until when he's overthrown the shot, there are elements of the State Department which are advising 
successive secretaries of state, culminating in Henry Kissinger, right, and and uh, and, and Cyrus Vance and Carter, you have he has to start reforming, right? This is not sustainable. What he's doing, what the Shah of Iran is doing, is not sustainable. The problem is that in the executive branch. And that's where the Secretary of State plays an interesting role. Is he just the kind of individual who just manages the bureaucracy of the State Department? Or does he have an active foreign policy presence? And with Henry Kissinger, we have somebody who has an active presence, right? Yeah. Especially after Nixon resigns in disgrace. And, you know, Gerald Ford is not a strong foreign policy president. So, Nixon, you know, so Kissinger has a lot of influence. Kissinger is looking at this from the executive branch. He's looking at this as, as kind of as part of broader U.S. economic policy, the transformation of the U.S. economy, maintaining a strong dollar in the wake of, of a number of the economic difficulties the U.S. is having in the 70s after the Vietnam War, after the you know this kind of deep recession, not just related to the Vietnam War, but the oil embargo uh, and, and other issues. And so for him, if this is – if we can find a way to recycle these massive these, – you know, billions of dollars that the Persian Gulf countries have, and weapons is one way to do it. And we see the Shah as our good friend. We see the Shah as stable. He has a strong military. He has a strong intelligence service. You know, They're not thinking that the Shah is going to be overthrown anytime soon. And, and, and as we talked a little bit about the last time I was on, they're still thinking that almost right up until the end, that this can still be saved. And that's, you know, there, so there's a lot of, within Washington circles, there's a lot of um, illusions about the Shah and his, and his rule. Saudi Arabia um, is interesting in, in, because they're not uh, – they don't have a strong military, right? I mean that's one of the other – they're kind of the, the other side of the coin. They're buying huge amounts of equipment from the United States, but they don't have a military to support it. Um, yeah. You can find reports and warnings through the 1980s about all of these weapons that are being sold to Saudi Arabia well beyond their capacity, um, and part of that's about – you know, what's not being talked about is this is for forward placement effectively. This is, it's in, in some ways a job creation program for the U.S., right? We can keep the major weapons manufacturers happy. We keep them employed in places like Southern California, where the aerospace industry is, and, and several other places. Um, and we know the Saudis aren't going to use those weapons because they don't have the military to do it. And in fact, this is really forward placement for the U.S., in the event of the of the 1980s, because at this point, the U.S. is looking at two major threats. It's looking at the threat of a post-Iranian revolution, uh, Iran, and, of course, the Soviet Union. So for them, the Saudis are, are close allies. Uh, and if anything, what the Saudis have to worry about is kind of internal dissension, uh, not so much uh, a kind of exporting their, uh, exporting their foreign policy. Right? That, of course, is going to come back to haunt almost everybody. But that's <laughs> not what they're thinking in the 1980s, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so when we talk about the arms, so now we, we see this this other big connection, right? Because the, the, the two things yeah. that I think in our modern era uh, people have kind of lost the origin, the, the original thread on is, number one, right. why is the United States so tied to so many of these countries, specifically Saudi Arabia, why are we constantly involved in Middle Eastern conflicts? Uh, of you know, as opposed to African conflicts or or, or conflicts right. throughout right. you know the rest of the world. Uh, and then secondarily, why do we keep selling arms even today? Right? Like, yeah. why are there weapons yeah. packages that we uh, uh, have have deals with? And this is really where that begins. This is where oil, money, and arms become kind of synonymous with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you when you think about that post-73 and through the 1980s, right, 
is where you start to see this massive amount of and, and they're going to just a few countries, right? So, you know, when we look at the, the gross number of arms sales, right, especially kicking in uh, even after the fall of the Shah, then you can start to see the, the shift, right? Because then you're going to start to see even greater quantities sold, especially to with Saudi Arabia as the main purchaser within a number of the other countries in and around the middle, in and around the Persian Gulf, right? So, and almost none of them have major militaries to support these arms sales. And this is continuing post 9-11 as well. Um, the, the increasing size of, so you're going to have some pre-existing bases. So for the Saudis, you're going to have several bases that are built by the U.S. after World War II. Um, after the late 60s, early 70s, there are some British bases as the British would draw in 68 from uh from the Persian Gulf, those principalities that they've been protecting places like Kuwait, what's now the UAE, Bahrain, those bases will be converted to U.S. bases. And then after 9-11, the, and after the first Persian Gulf War, and then again after 9-11, the U.S. is going to start expanding even more bases. You'll get the huge base in Qatar, the First Central Command. You'll have other bases, in and around, including you know a huge naval base in Bahrain. You're going to have other bases in and around Saudi Arabia. Um, so and then, of course, the bases that are built in Iraq after the U.S. invasion, the bases that are built in Afghanistan, the bases that are built in some of the, you know, if you want to extend the boundaries further into the Central Asian republics that are supposed to be for forward projection into Afghanistan, Iraq, and or Iran, should that be an issue yeah. in the future. So, yeah, it's a uh, – uh, the map of weapon sales, if you want to do a map of weapon sales – and of U.S. bases overlaid on the Persian Gulf, you know where the oil resources are, uh, is pretty dramatic. You know I, that's that's interesting because I had always in my head kind of thought of those bases as you know, if not total totally colonial, right? Then a similar idea of of like okay, well we deal with these nations, we have leverage over these nations, so we say we want a base and we get a base, or we're taking over a base and that's just what we get. But I hadn't thought of it in the context of this is just like the kind of mother of all weapon sales. that Because we, we think mm. of weapon sales as like, okay, well, we're making money, but we're giving them weapons that, you know, we even probably price into it that it, they're going to get in the wrong hands at some point, you know, be it through uh, a illegal trade or or, you know, a revolution or something. But if we think of the base more as that level of like, okay, this is a commitment to the region that that the country is likely uh, seek on some level leadership wise because it means a more permanent presence and a a cementing of a relationship that has provided fruitful for both sides. Right, I think that's a great point. I think one one way to think about it is this: so there's a, a more recent um, kind of base controversy, if you will. Um, so I mentioned there were three phases. We may be moving into kind of a fourth phase, the post-oil phase, right? I'll come back to that a little bit if we have time. But one of the, there's an interesting dispute that's developed the past few years between former allies. So when we think about, you know, often I think most listeners have difficulty knowing the difference between Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. So the largest base in the Persian Gulf, the base for Central Command, is in Qatar, right? And it's actually really kind of two bases in one. Um, but as part of this dispute where Qatar has been on one side and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have been on the other, and this has really this, – this, this tension between these countries has grown under the Trump administration. 
One of the things uh, that has emerged is that what's angering, for example, the United Arab Emirates, which is you know, a tiny, tiny set of principalities. Um, it's basically two cities, you know, uh, they're often competing for influence on the world stage, trying to punch well above their weight. One of the things that's angered them is that they want a major base. And in fact, you know, there have been some leaks of these discussions between the uh, Emirati ambassador to the U.S., as well as key players in uh, the Pentagon, talking about, hey, we want the base that's in Qatar, we want it here, and we'll even pay for it. All right, so how can we make this happen? So it's been part of this this interesting inter-Arab rivalry, inter-regional rivalry um, that has emerged, and the role of these bases. And part of it's about, you know, your point about kind of this kind of being a kind of a, a, a neo-colonial or colonial aspect. We're going to put our base here, whether you like it or not. Yeah, it, it's actually it's an, it's an interesting uh, comment because it also gives a number of things. I mean, you have to think about these regimes, right? So this takes us back to that idea of there being too much oil. Most of these are minority regimes, right? And Saudi Arabia is, it's a kingdom run by a family, but the vast majority of Saudis are not from the royal family. How do they maintain power? And, you know, you have the same thing. We know that the Emirates and Qatar have much smaller populations. It's easier for them to kind of maintain power. But even the Emirates, you know, one of the kind of the the, uh, stories that has emerged over the past few years is the level of surveillance and intimidation, human rights abuses that have gone on from the, the ruling family towards average Emiratis, right? Um, and so for, for them, this is also a level of prestige. It reaffirms them to their populations. It reaffirms their status in the region. Um, and that, you know, in a sense, these are also, we think of, you know, when we think about the world of nation state, these are all really fairly new countries, right? Yeah. Um, and they're not exactly super secure in their rule, especially when you had, from their perspective, when you look at, for example, uh, the Arab Spring of, of 2010, 2011 to 2012, many of the Gulf countries, especially the UAE, Saudi Arabia, were really frightened by the implications of the Arab Spring. On the one hand, because they, some of their key allies around the region, their regimes were either threatened or were overthrown. So, for example, Mubarak in Egypt or Ben Ali in Tunisia, um, those were regimes that had been kind of stalwarts. They were getting funding from heavy amounts of funding from the Saudis or from the the Emirates. Uh, And so when they were overthrown by popular uprisings, one of the things we see is this kind of counter-revolutionary instinct kicks in. These are very conservative regimes. The one thing they want is stability. They want to maintain their their rule, and this is and and that's where you see this kind of alliance of the minds with the U.S. From what we can tell, you know, around the Arab Spring, there's this debate that kicks in within the Obama administration: should we support the people in the streets or should we support our longtime allies? And from what we can tell, uh, the the split's almost generational, right? So. On the one side, you had Vice President Joe Biden, you had Secretary of State Clinton, and Secretary of Defense Robert Gates saying, we have to stick by our allies. The younger group, like Ben Rhodes, of, of uh, younger advisors around yeah. Obama had argued, no, we want to be on the right side of history. We want to support the people in the street. And so in a place like Egypt, you see Obama trying to kind of cut down, the, you know, go down the middle with his decision. At the same time, the Saudis, the Emirates, we'll see this also playing out in Syria, are going to say, you know what, we're not going to wait for the United States. We're here. We have, you know, we live here, right? Yeah. Uh, 
we have our allies and we are going to make sure that whatever that there's no spillover effect from a revolution or an uprising in Egypt to the Persian Gulf. And one of the things I think that's also important to remember is whether it's Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or Bahrain, any of these oil-rich countries, they have a large number of workers from the rest of the Middle East, especially from Egypt. They have a large number of workers from South Asia. Uh, remittances from the Persian Gulf are a key driver in the, in the economies around the region. Right? So this is another way that oil plays out, right? Um, and, and the politics of oil plays out is we, we often think about it as, oh, it's just about the world oil markets. Well, keep in mind, people work, you know, on those rigs, right? Yeah. People work in, in those areas. And those are often people from the much poorer Africans because you're, you're going to hire people who speak the language, right? So you're going to get a lot of people from North Africa. There's this really interesting, you know, and I think, you know, your listeners will, when they think about the Arab Spring, there was a lot of focus on, Facebook, on Twitter, on social media, what's often not discussed, and I think we're heading into this again with uh, with some of the issues around uh, the coronavirus and the economic downturn, is the implications of the 2007-2008 financial crisis, 2009 financial crisis, which begins in a sense in Dubai, right? So the collapse of the Dubai stock, stock market, the collapse of the United Arab Emirates, real estate holdings, um, and what, what you're going to get is kind of a regional flu that begins essentially in Dubai, impacts Qatar, impacts Saudi Arabia. Well, what's the role there? What happens is remittances are down. You have Egyptians, Tunisians, others from North Africa who lose their jobs, who have to go home. And so there's a lot of economic pressure. By the time we get to 2010, 2000, that's bubbling up across some of the, you know, some of the poorer, more populous countries. And that's going to also help trigger what we now think of as the Arab Spring, right? Uh, man, I, I'll tell you what, so much, uh, so much, so much to cover. Uh, I feel like we're going to have to come back and do another, uh, <laughs> installment on it that covers, uh, uh, you know, uh, stuff that's happening right now, but we're going to have to cut it short right. here for now. Right. Uh, uh, Osama Khalil, an associate professor of history at Syracuse university's Maxwell school. And of course the editor of United States relations with China and Iran toward the Asian century. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for responsible statecraft. Uh, uh, Professor Khalil, thank you so, so much for, for joining us again. My pleasure. Happy to do it. And that will wrap it up for us today. A reminder, you want to support the show, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, just like the Titanic $10 tier has, including Andrew, Angela, Brad, Brandon, Christopher, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, Deadman, Daycat, Jamilius, Jonathan, John Erica, Kevin, Lindsay, Matthew, Mike, Miranda, Nick, Nomadic, Olin and Angela, Richard, Thor, what? Uh, middle-aged Mike, Chad, Dallas Danger, Taylor, your boy Craig, Zachy Chan, TroubleFilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy Montana, D-Laser, Captain Bunzo, Kilowatt Podcast, Frozen Summers, Milk Leg Scoop, Emily, Wolf Glen 99, Berkeley, Stephen, The Gen, Hamburgers, N.H. Blumkin, Robert, and E-Oxy. Till next time. A reminder that you can follow me at Justin R. Young on Twitter, Instagram. You can get live political commentary from me each and every weekday, except for Wednesdays, on twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. In fact, just go over to twitch.tv.justinryoung right now 
follow me, and you're going to get alerts when I go live. It's just that easy. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying politics has three names. And I saw a show that was talking about politics. I was on the Instagram and I saw somebody just chatting it up about politics. And all on Twitter, anybody could talk about was politics. But this is the only show that dares to talk about. Oh. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>